Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Art Spiegelman may have made his name as a so-called underground cartoonist, but among other things, he's also a chevalier de l'ordre des arts et des lettres, a, a former Guggenheim fellow, and he's received two honorary doctorates and a Pulitzer Prize. Plus, he's been given one-man exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art and the Jewish Museum and made a guest appearance on The Simpsons. He's also been writing about some of the artists he admires. Most recently, a four-page piece in the New York Review of Books about Paul C. Tumtumi's new book, Screwball, the cartoonist who made the funnies funny. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Art Spiegelman to our show now. And uh, Art, hi. Uh, I should also add that your article is also about a traveling exhibit of Rube Goldberg's work that closed just recently at the Queens Museum. Mm. Now, it's nice uh, to be back, Lenny. It's nice to be with you. It's great to see you. The, the, the title you've given your review is Foolish Questions. Who's asking those questions? Uh, it's a quote from one of the many memes that Rube Goldberg developed. Like he kept finding these catchphrases that one was just foolish questions, which was several generations earlier, but similar to Al Jaffe's snappy answers to stupid mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't call it that, although I could have and should have. Uh, that was the editor's. I was going to just call it Screwball mm -hmm. uh, because it's about a sensibility that I was, a sensibility that I was trying to right. locate. Which is what we're going to talk about. And, um, and Rube Goldberg seemed like the right way in. Well, and then, of course, the, the, the book is called Screwball. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, there are probably more words in this one article than in all of your other works combined. So you're, you're doing a lot of writing these days? More writing than drawing. And this is the longest article that the New York Review of Books has published, period. It's like close to 6,000 yeah. words. And With a lot of pictures, that. too. Yeah, relatively. And online, lots and lots of pictures. Uh, do you see yourself as a part of uh, this long tradition? Because you have created uh, some screwball-y kinds of things, like wacky packages and the garbage pail kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, I think... One basic thing is that what formed me as a cartoonist was reading Mad when I was a kid. Mm. And it's why I was shocked when Pete Buttigieg said, what's that, when he was called Alfred e. Newman in one of those tags that uh, our idiot chief pegs on people. So as I say in the article, that was either a candid or a canny response to mm. say, I don't know Alfred e. Newman. That must be something from the 1930s Well, I was disappointed that he wouldn't know who Alfred E. Newman was. I'm hoping that he did, but it was just... Although, th that's engaging. not really in the purview of this article. You do talk a bit about Mad at the end. But the book, uh, t t is it Tummy or Toomey? Toomey. Toomey's book doesn't go that far. No, but he very specifically at the end of the book says, this whole book could have been subtitled The Road to Mad. Mm -hmm. And it is a pretty straight line. And that road from Mad leads... Definitely from underground comics into whatever happens now and after that moment. So it is a, a very specific tradition, and Rube Goldberg pretty much is at the core of it. Well, he became so famous that he was listed as an adjective in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in the early 1930s. Quote, accomplishing by complex means what seemingly could be done simply. Yeah, um, he was... I think the way I phrased it in the book, I was glad to have this... Uh, these phrasings in the article, like I called him the Christopher Columbus of uh, screwball gadgets because he figured out a new way to get from A to B by going through every other letter of the alphabet. <laughs> and I figured people who don't know comics, they know that Rube Goldberg is an adjective. That, this isn't working, by the way. Uh, 
I can talk? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Your headphones weren't working at the moment? Uh, they just stopped a second ago. Okay. Um, so I have no idea if I'm on the air or You're not. You're on. I'm on. Okay. Sorry, folks out there. Uh, but basically, uh, it, it was a kind of... Um, uh, Everybody knows what a screwball machine is because eventually their STEM studies bump into cause and effect chain reactions. And Rube Goldberg is what every fifth grade science teacher is yearning to be able to teach because kids will be paying attention. And so that was the way to ease people into a sensibility because those machines are definitely screwball machines. Uh, he, he got the idea for these convoluted contraptions uh, in a way as a response to the machine age. Well, yeah, he was born at the right moment for that to be there. But also he, his father, who was uh, a fixture in Republican politics in the turn of the century San Francisco, insisted that he go to engineering school. And he reluctantly did and got a job when he got out working for the sewer system of San Francisco, uh, mapping sewers. He lasted, I think, either two weeks or a month, I can't remember right now, and then took a pay cut to work as a cartoonist at a local paper in San Francisco. You mentioned his father was a Republican. I don't see you as having much in common with Rube Goldberg other than <laughs> uh, either in subject matter or politics. His uh, politics... Well, my, er my early oh. comics have a, a, a kind of uh, Rube Goldberg-like style because it comes via Robert Crumb, who definitely had that as part of his Yeah, DNA. but he was opposed to the New Deal and admired... Senator Joe know, McCarthy. Isn't that, isn't that sad? Like, I found that out late in the game and went, oh, I have to include it just in terms of trying to, like, be accurate. But uh, I don't like to think of it. I think it's in part because his father was a lifelong Republican part of the party machine uh, and part because he was voting and, and acting in his own class interests. He'd become very, very wealthy as a cartoonist. He got married to a uh, an heiress. So he was living definitely in the... Uh, he'd be pals with Bloomberg. You uh, write that cartooning has a role as a zeitgeist barometer. Yeah, uh, and that doesn't just apply to Rube Goldberg, but to that's many of the cartoonists that you're that you're writing about. I think it's about. almost all cartooning does that. Uh, it's it has to do with the fact that to make you know cartooning is neither drawing or writing. I've done both separately. Uh, I've done them. I, I've yeah. I, I've done them separately and together, but basically what they do is something I might have even said on your show one of the many times I was on because, as I was telling your engineer before we got on, I'd work on a book listening to your show in the afternoons, and then after I finished a book, I'd be on and talk about it, and that was the cycle of my work life. But <laughs> at one point or another, it became clear to me that comics echo the way the brain works, uh, which is to say... We think in little icons, like babies can recognize a have-a-nice-day smile before they can recognize their mother smiling because it's a simplified thing. And that simplified thing goes straight into your brain. We mm. don't think in long paragraphs. We think in little bursts of language, like what fit, could fit in a gag cartoon New Yorker caption or in a speech balloon. And when you put those two things together, it, you get an electronic boom in your head because it's the nugget of a thought and so cartoons are very good at coming out before even the cartoonist knows what he's been digesting and spitting out and it makes him or her a zeitgeist barometer now uh, all art seems to art uh i i studied with ed reinhardt i studied painting with ed reinhardt and he said all art comes from art and i assume that applies to what we're discussing as well wasn't goldberg influenced uh, uh by uh a British cartoonist and illustrator named William Heath Robinson. Um, to a degree. 
I think that they were about the same time. Heath Robinson's two years earlier, and there's a guy in Denmark named Storm Peterson mm -hmm. who's doing the same thing before Goldberg. And as I continued that uh, Christopher Columbus quote, I said, on the other hand, he's like Christopher Columbus, and like Columbus, others got there first. It's interesting that uh, the British military named a code-breaking machine after Heath Robinson during World War mm -hmm. II. They both have different senses of humor, but they're both responding to the same thing, and I don't even know that they knew each other's work. If you don't mind me getting totally termite into the one thing I know about, unlike most New York Review of Books readers, I don't know about Etruscan vases, political theory, literary theory, uh, most of the things that they are all experts on. But there's one thing that nobody needs to be an expert on is where my expertise lies. So there was also an earlier cartoonist who's, <laughs> whose name I'm not remembering at the moment, who's uh, sent around by the same syndicate, Dw uh, Dwiggins, mm -hmm. who did these kind of weird gadget-like machinery jokes for the same syndicate, so Rupert would have certainly seen those uh, a couple of years before as well. So I think it was just literally in the air. And uh, that's something that's continued within the culture. Um, we see it in films, in Chaplin, Keaton, the Marx Brothers, Olsen and, and Johnson, the Three Stooges, uh, in some animated films, and also um, in some later films, uh, there's a crazy inventions in Back to the Future and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Absolutely. And, and, and Jim Carrey's whole career. Wouldn't they be called like Rube Goldberg inventions? And as the inventions and the whole sensibility. Like when I, I mentioned Jim Carrey, uh, mm -hmm. it's that kind of manic, overheated kind of humor as opposed to the droll version, which uh, might be part of what you'd connect with the Colbert Report or something. It also comes out of vaudeville, I guess, and comedia uh, lot. But uh, I, I'm sure that he didn't feel totally pleased when Marcel Duchamp and Man Ray put one of Goldberg's cartoons in the 1921 issue of the, the New York Dada magazine because their politics would have been so different. Well... I think the anarchic part of it probably would have worked for Rube, but I think the fact that it was from the other side of the street, it was the highbrow part of the street rather than the cash-and-carry commercial art side of the street that he believed in wholly. So if he knew about it at all, he would have looked at it quizzically, even though it's very nice that they did it. They just saw a fellow traveler. There was no condescension in it like there might have been in pop art. Although he did not appreciate abstract art. Not at all. I mean, if you couldn't see what it was a picture of, why make it? In fact... Mm -hmm. I think it's on the online version. There's a great drawing of Rube Goldberg looking at modern art, and he's standing upside down, hanging onto the painting <laughs> with his foot on the railing, with a telescope going right into this abstract picture, looking confused. You write that it's important to remember, I'm quoting you, that comics have their roots in subversive joy and nonsense. Um, but they also were engaged in the sort of stereotyping we no longer find acceptable. Why, I'll say. In fact, I think I said somewhere in that essay, this was a, a repository. If I can back up for a second to say why I talked about Rube Goldberg when talking about Screwball, I'm talking to people who know nothing about this. I know nothing about their areas of expertise. But in this case, I thought, I'm not going to show them all of the amazing artists in this book because there's about 15. Mm. If I just take them through a few and introduce them to the sensibility, they'll look. And Goldberg was the place to start for such a thing. Especially since he had just had this major museum show. Yeah, exactly. And 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 also because he's just a household word because of the aforementioned STEM studies in schools. Mm -hmm. But but beyond that, what there is is there's a kind of um like subversive joy 
I suppose, in uh, the kind of work that is involved in screwball. And as a result, it's a sensibility that's worth trying to find, even though it's impossible to really define. And you asked me a question that I lost track of while... Well, yeah, I myself. said, but there's something that we now find unacceptable. There's ah, yes, a lot of stereotyping. Yes, exactly, because that's the essence of cartooning. I mean, it's not like a side benefit. It's I think in the essay I said something like... Uh, Be, you mean you, being subversive. Well, being subversive, but specifically stereotyping, hmm. uh, which is exactly what we're nailed by now in our politically uh, sophisticated or correct, depending on which word you want to use, version of this, it's as if you had a dictionary, the cartoonist dictionary, and it's like there was no other way to describe a person of color except to use the N-word. How do you get to the poetry through a language that's that debased at its core? And it's the essence of what caricature is. If you're not making fun of a race or a sex, you're making fun of a, a person's height or weight, your body shaming, your uh, affliction shaming, you're shaming. It's the nature of caricature. Uh, the these artists have uh, gained a considerable amount of respectability in recent years. There have been many books and museum shows. Do they tend to leave out the objectionable pieces? Well, yes, unless it was a show specifically about America's hate-filled heritage, it's unlikely to come up. And, in fact, speaking of that, my good friends at the New York Review of Books removed a word from an essay, and I'm still <laughs> chafing at it, because in the essay I talk about how Paul Toomey did not try to whitewash the uh, pejorative, racist aspects of comics, nor did he try to, like, uh, uh, avoid it totally because he wanted to... Um, point to it without grinding your face in in that toxin. and But the word whitewash was, I guess, like the word niggardly. I, I couldn't use it in print. Even though niggardly has nothing to do nothing. with race. And whitewashing has Doesn't nothing either. to do with race. Yeah, it has either. to do with painting something with it's the white Tom paint. It's Tom Sawyer stuff, yeah. It, um, but it seemed like... Will they allow blacklist? <sighs> Depends who says it. <laughs> Yellow journalism? How far do we go here? <laughs> well, I think colors are going to be off the books soon. <laughs> but you see, like my problem is not that that um, I have a I have no issue with the things that are being brought into the conversation now. It's actually very healthy. It's just that the conversation tends to be squelched as soon as it starts. And I think it's really important to not repress thoughts, but to let them out, analyze them, examine them, and not be shamed for having them. And that's the nature of what being an underground cartoonist was. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, where listeners sponsored. Uh, and my guest is Art Spiegelman. We are talking about uh, an art, well, we are inspired in this conversation by uh, a huge article that he has written for the New York Review of Books uh, that uh, is both about Rube Goldberg's uh, recent exhibit at the Queens Museum and Paul C. Toomey's new book called Screwball, the cartoonist who made the funnies funny. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've been doing a, a fair amount of, of writing recently. You, you wrote, edited, and designed a book called Cy Lewin's Parade, mm. and and then there was an essay you wrote for Harper's about the early 20th century political cartoonist Art Young. So uh, have you st stopped drawing? For the past few months, yes. Um, I think <clears throat> somebody who I hope will listen to at least the podcast when I tell him this happened is my very good friend Ken Jacobs, who's uh, a non-narrative filmmaker whose mm -hmm. loft was about three blocks from where you're used to 
check her punch a time clock uh, at City Hall. And he had said something that really stayed with me, which is, Art, everything one does in life is to avoid something worse. And I think that's just a true statement. You know, like I think I did mouse because I didn't want to commit suicide, which would have been worse. And here I'm writing rather than drawing because it's I'm, I'm somewhat more facile with language. The drawing is genuinely hard. So unless there's a really good reason to do it, I just don't now. But you've always been a writer because uh, you're well, I guess all these cartoonists you're talking about are writers as well, because mm -hmm. words are always important in their work. But uh, in your case, more than most. Yeah, I mean, the idea is what what makes the drawing happen. It's not usually the drawing that makes the idea happen. It's happened to me a few times in my life. But they're both kinds of writing. Like I was saying, it's either picture writing, like the have a nice day face icons, or it's writing writing. And in writing writing, you can use a word processor. <clears throat> Sorry. And when you're uh, drawing, you have to have good, in quotes, handwriting. And it's very hard for me to get handwriting that I find uh, pleasant to look at. When you were doing a, uh, a cartoon, did you already have what the, uh, the characters are going to say written out? Or did mm. that come with the drawings? Well, the reshaping of language came once I was drawing, because I'd see how much room I had left in the box. <laughs> because I couldn't have like a one-inch high my mouse and an eight-inch high balloon, uh -huh. or it would just be peculiar looking. So I had to parse this thing in beats and condense the text the same way drawings are condensed in mouse and in my other work. But usually there's a kind of writing, and then it becomes more and more compressed as I do drafts and find the finished art. All of the artists that you've written about came up with very recognizable drawing styles. As one of those artists yourself, does the drawing style come naturally? Because you've said drawing is always a struggle. It is a struggle. And it's because I, <clears throat> I, don't ha I, I never wanted to have a style. I never looked for a style. Maybe when I was 10 years old and saw that cartoonists are supposed to make a nose this way if they want to be that. Well, initially, you're probably imitating somebody who you admire. Who had style, yeah. But for me, it's sort of like the style is an aspect of the content. So if I'm doing a certain kind of strip, I've got to find something that approximates the Terry and the Pirates style of illustration photo cartooning. And if I'm doing something that's zany, it's got to look zany. So the style would be uh, shifted to accommodate the content of the piece, which is why even in Mao's, there's a four-page section that's done in a different style, which was very German expressionist that, and woodcut-like that had to do with my mother's suicide. I'd done it at a different moment, but with a different purpose. I wanted it to be overheated and as emotional as I felt. And so that kind of expressionist woodcut was the right way to make it look, and I had to learn how to make that set of marks. And the rest of Mouse, I needed it to be more cooled down so it wouldn't become histrionic and ultimately a phrase I think I coined, hollow kitsch. Hmm. So it was a matter of just trying to keep it so you could have a slight distance while looking at it. You've been very critical of a number <laughs> of uh, things that involve the Holocaust. Uh, you... Uh, call some of them almost Holocaust porn. Yeah, that's what's on TV now. Like, uh, I, Did you see something called The Hunter? It just I haven't seen it. Oi well, as they say in my country. <laughs> <laughs> it's superhero Nazi hunters and uh, things that are so extreme that they help you get inured to the actuality. You know, like, the first, you know, I could only watch the pilot, but it involves a kind of uh, Nazi throwing darts into the body of our protagonist who's tied up. Mm. They throw it into his body and he says, now, if you don't tell me what I need to know, I'll throw it into your eye. Ooh. Now, I don't think 
I never read about that in the Nazi actual literature, so that's a kind of Nazi porn. And it, in a way, by making it so excessive, it makes Trump look normal. So I don't like what I know of this series as an example of hollow porn, hollow kitsch, whatever. And a number of the most famous films you have... I've had problems with a lot of them, yeah. Schindler's List. Schindler's instance. List was a problem, yeah. Like, uh, um, it seemed that after every de after after every sex scene, there was a mass death scene. So it seemed to have <laughs> a lot to do with kind of Christian guilt. <laughs> <laughs> and you think that they were consciously making that connection? No, they're just one of those words I'm not supposed to use. On the air. They're whacked up. <laughs> Getting back to the screwball comic strips. I suspect that many listeners of the show will recognize the more famous creations of these artists, but not necessarily know the names of the artists who, who made them. That's probably true. I mean, Rube Goldberg being the exception. They know his name, but they don't know he was a cartoonist. Uh, but for most of them, yeah, it's like uh, my uh, pal Dan Close, uh, alternative comics artist who did 8-Ball and, um, well, many many books at this point, um, said being a famous cartoonist is like being a famous badminton player. <laughs> Except that we know a lot more about the cartoons than we know about the badminton. After all, the cartoons have... Uh, didn't uh, newspapers actually, uh, when they started the comics pages, just have these kinds of cartoons? There was no... There was no uh, Superman or no, no. Batman this was way before that. Mark yeah. Train Trail or well, that's why when you said that it comes out of vaudeville, that's exactly what it comes out of, and it comes out of a certain nineteenth-century caricatural tradition, and it was meant to be uh, slapstick and vaudeville. It was that was why they called them the funny papers, and at that point, people did know the cartoonists. You know, those the cartoonists well into the thirties were bold-faced names, the same way that like internet stars might be now, or the Kardashians or something. So when Bud Fisher went to the Copa, it would get covered. And were they coming from other things like humor magazines like Puck? Absolutely. Puck, very specifically, uh, was the breeding ground for one of the artists that I do cover, and he's the cover boy for the current uh, New York Review of Books, is a guy named Frederick Opper who did Happy Hooligan. We'll get to him in a moment. But, but th that person came specifically from Puck magazine, which tended to be a political and humor magazine with articles and with lots of drawings lithographed in color. One of the artists you haven't uh, included is Billy DeBeck, who yeah, gave I love us... his work. Who, excuse me? I love his work. Snuffy Smith and Barney Google. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I want to remind our listeners that they are listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Who's the 
the greatest lover that this country ever knew. And who's the man that fell in We're back with Art Spiegelman. We're talking about screwball cartoonists and uh, that in that case uh, that was a, a song inspired by one of the screwball cartoons Barney Google uh, Billy DeBeck's creation he also great did original Snuffy of, Smith I have a great original of uh, Barney Google's up in my studio that I, I'm very happy to look at daily it's one where see DeBeck had been doing something very much New York based and uh, based on racetrack life and society and at that point, Barney Google has to hide because of something that he did. So he goes to the hillbilly country and is hiding out there. And, and De Beck, the artist, had gone there and got really fascinated by hillbilly life. And as a result, he became kind of um, an anthropologist and got the language down. So this wasn't like Al Cap, the New York hillbilly, who just mm. took the cliches. He was actually living with it. And there's one scene that's at the end of a Sunday of Snuffy Smith about to be lynched. And it looks very serious, Whoa. even with that Bigfoot style, and it, it's somber. And I, I just love looking at that picture because even when people talk about my mouth stuff and some of my other things, they look kind of relatively friendly, but wow. So uh, these screwball cartoons could still get political if we're talking about lynching. Absolutely. And when you talk, you know, even like I would say that in some ways— I mean, other than Rube Goldberg. Well, who, sure, but like even Walt Kelly— may not be the first thing you think of, but it's a very screwball comic strip. I mean, Albert the Alligator is just trying to eat Pogo most of the time, even though he's his good friend, because that's what alligators yeah, but Pogo do. really was commenting on the politics of the Directly. day. Directly. It was a direct political comic strip, and yet that's what, screwball can come with different accents. It can be political. It can be satirical. It can be parody. Uh, it just can't be sedate. That New Yorker style is not a screwball mm -hmm. style, except every once in a while maybe George Booth goes there. Now, I was uh, interested in, because we try to put music to every one of the shows in how that's pretty much the only song that came out of uh, a comic oh, strip. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I couldn't find anything for Crazy Cat or... Crazy Cat, the... there's a whole uh, um, ballet, but yeah. that's something else again. Um, but there, there's a, a song called Banana Oil by one of the greatest screwballs who I mentioned in this mm. thing, a guy named Milt Gross. Yeah. Um, and that's Banana Oil, and then there's this verse that would give, when you're Girlfriend says she loves you. Da, 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 da. That's banana oil. Banana oil being uh, no, I found that, on the but radio I just thought it was book. not as relevant as Barney Google, where he wrote the, the name the of Google, a Google, Google, yeah. Google yeah. And later we have Alley Oop, of course. Oh, right. Uh, I mean, the, the, it happened, and it happened in the 20s and 30s quite often because these people were higher in the consciousness of uh, our cultural celebrities before a world of radio hookups and television. You mentioned uh, Frederick Burr. Opper. Mm. Uh, that's uh, how Toomey begins his book. Why is he significant? Well, for one thing, if nothing else, if you're just trying to follow the evolution of comics, grammar, and language, he brings the speech balloon into the Sunday comics as opposed to just having type underneath or, or pantomime. Oh, really? And he makes it a regular part of the So the yellow strip. kid, they, they didn't have speech balloons? Well, he, he spoke on his nightshirt. You know, they'd write it on his yellow shirt. Um, and eventually he began to use balloons, but not consistently. And it wasn't even a multi-panel thing for the most part. But Opper was hired because he was a class act. It's as if you can start a new kind of comic section and say, let's get Saul Steinberg to do it. 
you know, because he'll bring some class to this thing. He's already a mature artist working for Puck Magazine, doing political work and some humor work. And they thought this would really kind of tone up what people saw as a little bit vulgar and for the immigrant culture. And when he comes in, he um, <laughs> he decides to go slumming. He's just having fun and he's drawing for himself rather loosely and goofily and inventing the kind of comics language that develops into Rube Goldberg and beyond. And he drew strips for William Randolph Hearst's journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the newspaper wars uh, that he that Hearst was having with Joseph Pulitzer around the turn of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. yeah, like I, you know, I'm not sure exactly how the phrase yellow journalism came to pass. I've read different things, but it seems I to be connected the to the kid. yellow kid. It the yellow kid. It was they actually printed it with yellow ink, mm-hmm. which was a, a a big departure for newspapers at the time. Well, not. I mean, when you get past like the, you know, when. When you have a legend, print the legend is basically uh, how our news operates these days, anyway. But uh, but ultimately, yeah, it was it it struck people, and that language mixing with the comics is why I call them comics. And uh, yeah, the, the Spanish American War when we were fighting it at that moment, uh, Hearst was saying, "You provide the war, I'll provide the picture. I'll provide the war, you provide the pictures," and that's a true quote. And that did happen. That's now you, exactly what now happened. you like the fact to spell comics C O M I X. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, originally it was used to differentiate underground comics from others because it was X rated, and if you spelled it with an X, there was that. And then I keep staring at this and going, ah, people don't like calling it comics because now there are melodramatic things and whatever. But if it's called comics, comics, mm-hmm. then you're just talking about mixing different kinds of handwriting, the drawn one and the written one, and voila, it's perfectly handy for the 21st century, and we don't need graphic novels as a phrase. Opera created Happy Hooligan. Yeah, that's now, his most famous. Was that can, was that at that moment uh, a giant sensation? Well, it was, it was beloved. Yeah, he had a lot of characters. I think the other one that didn't last that long that was also incredibly popular was Alphonse and Gaston. Mm-hmm. It was like these two Alphonse Frenchmen. and Gaston. Yes. After you, Alphonse. Yes. No, no. I insist after you. So what it would be is like they both had to get off a cliff before something ran them mm-hmm. over, and they would just be busy out politing each other instead. Mm-hmm. But Happy Hooligan started out as an anti-Irish caricature, talk about poetry. So it was stereotyping. Language. Absolutely. Uh, and he, but he, Happy Hooligan, very specifically, has a genealogy that leads from him to Boob McNutt, which was Rube Goldberg's character, uh, another hapless hooligan. Uh, and then ultimately it goes through Charlie Chaplin, who's influenced by the movies of Happy Hooligan that were made in silent era. And then ultimately it lands with Charlie Brown, who's another hapless, good-intentioned schmo. And Chaplin actually makes a movie about somebody who's working in a factory that... Oh, yeah. Uh, ...overwhelmed by the... Uh, Modern uh, times. yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, an auto-feeder machine that goes berserk. And when you go into that Rube Goldberg uh, exhibit that was at the Queen's Museum, and nobody was attending. I think it's because it's out in the tundra somewhere, but it's it's a hard museum to get to. But it was a, not as well attended as the show might have uh, gotten. If it, was if it had been at the Whitney or... Yeah, but still, it... Uh, st- one of the key things you can look at are some film clips that he made, and that scene is totally a Rube Goldberg-like mm-hmm. device of how to feed a worker so he doesn't have to stop working, mm-hmm. and it goes wrong and starts, like, throwing bolts and nuts into his mug, you know? And uh, it's Chaplin and uh, um, Goldberg were pals. Mm-hmm. Well, and then Buster Keaton also was inspired by those Oh, things. man, he was, like, really a parallel... Creature. I mean, his things are so scientifically worked out to be stupid. 
you know, like all of all of his routines involve him being a balletic part of a machine in order to make these things work. He was an engineer movie phenomenon. Another artist that you write about is Eugene Zimmerman, Zim. Mm. Uh, and he's remembered in part because of the uh, ethnic and racial aspects of some of his work. Well, that's exactly how we got into that part of the conversation yeah. when we were talking a minute ago. It's like his stuff, the person who wrote his biography says it's about 30%. I am guessing it's more than that, and the guy was just being kind so he could write the biography and not have to apologize every three sentences. But it was a very popular form of exclusion at, at that time in history. It wasn't like, considered shocking then. Not shocking. It was funny. It was just funny. Uh same way as, like, we can look back on certain kinds of uh, sexual wisecracks as just totally innocent now, not so innocent. Um, and ultimately, the thing with uh, Zim is he specialized in this, and he was very good at it. In a way, you can actually see the person as well as the hideous caricature at the same time. And there are many of them. And in fact, if you go online and look at the article there rather than on newsprint, there's one of the anti-Semitic ones uh, online, because I figured that would be less hard to take, because everybody hates Jews, rather than do an anti-black cartoon. But he did anti-black, anti-Jew. Absolutely, and Chinese, and whatever. And of course, opera was doing anti-Irish. He was, but he ended up making it friendly. Like, I, I think I used a phrase somewhere in there about ambient uh, uh, racism, rather than uh, virulent racism. It's interesting that one of the, the most memorable of all the cartoons was uh, created by a Creole born in New Orleans. That's so impressive. I mean, George Harriman, when you look back over the century, stands uh, really, really high in any kind of uh, pantheon of the gods. Mm. Uh, Crazy Cat is Still a popular. remarkable strip. And more than ever, I mean, now it's coming back into print, all of it, and it's sublime. It's genuinely sublime. So it is screwball if you have a mouse hitting a cat with a brick. That's the basis of slapstick. But when you realize that it's a white mouse hitting a black cat with a brick, which is more recently entered into cultural knowledge, then your mind gets blown because he was passing. He passed as white. Yeah. And, you know, I went to New Orleans as a pilgrimage because uh, uh, the person who wrote the book lives there, and he took me to the spots where Harriman was growing up till he was 10 or 11 and moved to the West Coast and changed his color with his family. Uh, and it's, there's a spot there where there was a riot created by uh, returning soldiers after the Civil War. And a white kid starts a riot by throwing bricks at the black soldiers uh -huh. who are coming back. And that's like so a this race was autobiographical memory. in an Absolutely. Odd way. And and you see it in the strip. Like he's white on the daily strips, pink on Sundays. When Crazy Cat goes into the beautician, we don't even know what sex this creature is, let alone what race. Sometimes she, sometimes he, and comes out white. Then Ignatz, who hates uh, his his mission in life is to be hateful toward Crazy Cat. But when he sees this white cat comes out, he falls in love. <laughs> Gene Ahern's creation, our boarding house, ran from 1921 until 1984. I remember it in the World Telegram and Sun. Um, but he, a number of artists uh, drew it over the years. He dropped out at a certain point? He got more money by going to King Features Syndicate. I don't know which one the World Telegram was in, but there were t for a while there were two uh, versions of this, Judge Puffle and Major Hoople. Major mm -hmm. Hoople was the original, but when Ahern left, he renamed him Judge Puffle, but it was basically the same strip. I remember Major Hoople. Me too, as, as a name, but I think you... Well, did you see the little top strip that I'm talking about, uh, The Squirrel Cage? Which yeah. It's the one that has the Mr. Natural-like hitchhiker who goes nafshmaska pop all the time. 
By the way, people can access your article by going. If they go online, I think it's not online. even locked up. You don't have to be yeah. a subscriber to read it, at least this week. I don't know what they do in the long run. So uh, what do you think, uh, why do you think it was able to sustain itself for so long? Because he just had created these wonderful characters? He who? Ahern? Uh, Ahern, the uh, boarding house. Oh, I think it's because he was like, he's my, he's what put me in touch with Toomey to begin with, because he he discovered something, which is these little top strips that ran above where not every paper had them, and they weren't as easy to remember or find for the most part. They were supposed to be throwaways, but Ahern did them, so they were in kind of dialogue with the strip below. The strip below is about this gas bag, this Munchausen W.C. feels like braggart who's always got a get-rich-quick scheme that won't work. But on Sundays, he would usually be telling some kind of insane tale to the other boarding house people, like, when I was a prisoner during the Boer War and I had to get messages out to our troops, I hid them in the alphabet soup, you know? So um, there's that. But on the, So there's a kind of fantasy built into this squalid world of boarding houses. And in the top strip, there's something that was as surreal as a comic ever got, and um, it is told with such sobriety that it feels more like it's uh, waiting for Godot than just uh, vaudeville. He also had uh, a woman in uh, a, a kind of a matronly woman who yeah, Mrs. was the alter ego. Mrs. Too. Hoople, the woman who ran the boarding house with a jaw bigger than Popeye's. You mentioned uh, Milk Gross's banana oil. Mm. He also did the squirrel cage. And the, well, he did uh, Count Screwloose from Toulouse. Squirrel cage was a... I'm sorry. To, oh. um, it's one of these problems I have on. But Yiddish, that was Yiddish humor. Absolutely. At a time where it wasn't that obvious to do such a thing, uh, certainly the earliest strips, like Nye's Baby and so on, are told in a kind of accent, and it's spelled out phonetically. So you'd read it as if it was a foreign language, and language, and you'd get the idea. And he did... A bit of stereotyping here as well. Absolutely. Fa- but with from, fondness. Yeah, well, from inside. It was the defense mechanism of what they call Jewish humor. And ultimately, he was an early participant in the war on Christmas, that I'm a, a, a private in that war, but nevertheless... Uh, he had a book called The Night in the Front from Christmas, which was a rewriting of The Night Before Christmas in the Yiddish, Yiddishized English. That's just hilarious. And how long did that cartoon run? Nice Baby? Every one of them ran for a few years. But Nice Baby was talk about being a writer-artist. He had a column that was popular before any of his comics got really, really popular. And it was all written in this kind of Yiddish. It was called uh, Nice Baby. Uh, and it was about people talking through a dumbwaiter, and you'd see the lives in different mm. floors of the house, you know. Oh, uh, and it'd say, not in the head mm. is a door. Wap, 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 wap. Not in the head. Uh, so, uh, so he's a writer, artist, and he was very popular, but he kept changing strips. The one I probably liked the best is Count Screwloose from Toulouse because it was a guy who would escape from a madhouse every week. Mm. Uh, finding a new and insane way to get out of the madhouse. He would see how people live in the outside world, and he'd come running back to his <laughs> pet dog, who was another inmate who had a Napoleon hat on, saying, Keep an eye on me, Iggy. Because <laughs> the world was crazier than the madhouse. The world was crazier madhouse. than him, absolutely. And then uh, another uh, cartoon many will remember with fondness, Smokey Stover. The, that's Bill Holman. Yeah, and that was probably... I don't know how widely popular it was. We got it in the Daily News every mm-hmm. every Sunday about a fireman. And it's the most intensive, hyperactive version of Screwball. Like, one thing I talk about is the plop take. When when there's a punchline, the character's receiving the punchline, mm-hmm. plops out Fall the panel down. with his feet up in the mm-hmm. air. Uh, and... When Holman's version of this would happen, their eyes would explode out of their head, their ears would fall off, their uh, 
skull there not only would their shoes come <laughs> off but their socks would come off so it was like he would really have an overreaction and lots of background information in all of the panels so that every inch was filled with a kind of hyperactivity so why do you think that uh, Toomey didn't include Harvey Kurtzman, who is part of this great tradition? Well, another way to do that book would be not to be a screwball, but Toomey certainly is. So what he did was he focused on a bite that he could understand. He didn't even, like, I don't think Billy DeBeck is one of the cartoons in it, but he could have been. Mm -hmm. uh, so he had to choose some samples and do deep dives and often give the first biographical information about any of these unknown cartoons that anybody's ever written. Um, and he couldn't take that big a bite. If he did... It would be obvious to include Mad. It would be obvious to include. Do you know who Basil Wolverton is? The sure. Guy does the monster creatures, ultimate screwball cartoons of the kind. He did these kind. incredibly ugly people. He, he won the ugliest woman in the world contest <laughs> that Al Cap had for Little Abner to get married to. Um, but he also did something called Powerhouse Pepper, which was written in unstrained rhymes and also had all of the signs of screwball in it. You also there's a number. In fact, the last person that he includes in the book is a guy named Booty Rogers, who had a comic strip for a brief time, but his real his real uh, flowering was in comic books, and he stopped before comic books, this author. The word screwball has been applied to uh, these comic strips, but it's also been used to describe a Hollywood comedy style that uh, featured actors like Carol Lombard, Barbara Stanwyck, later Marilyn Monroe. Sure. Uh, and, of course, some people will even apply it to, to somebody in, in the White House right now. Um, so uh, it's, it, it can mean a lot of different things. Well, screwball comedy definitely became a genre, and it became a genre consciously after the Hayes Code. You know the, this thing that like started censoring movies? They couldn't have all the sexual innuendo, so they kind of sublimated it into really hot, fast, intelligent, jokey talk. Mm -hmm. So um, basically, I think it was Andrew Saras who said, uh, screwball comedies are like sex comedies but without the sex. Yeah, but if, I, I would have called them witty more than anything else. Although, That's hot. Uh, it might be a good name for a show that replaces Chris Matthews' hardball. <laughs> what do you think? Well, it would give him a second life. <laughs> We uh, see a fair amount of screwball stuff on, on television these days, on the news shows. Yeah, well, I think the problem, is, I think I, it's near the end of my essay, is saying that the problem with screwball is that it somehow sounds affectionate, uh. you know? And so to say he's a screwball president means, yeah, but, you know, he's on the side of the angels. He's trying to get rid of abortions. Uh, and, and actually, instead of calling him a screwball, it's more appropriate just to call him a narcissistic psycho, sociopath or something. But that doesn't have that cuddly aspect to it. I'm speaking with Art Spiegelman about screwball cartoonists. Uh, he has written a long major piece in New York Review of Books uh, that is a review of both Paul Toomey's new book, Screwball, the cartoonist who made the funnies funny, but also um, a recent uh, exhibit at the Queens Museum of Rube Goldberg's work. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. Uh, and uh, we are listener-sponsored. I, I think we should make that point. We uh, rely on our listeners to, to keep us going. We mentioned President Trump. Uh, now, uh, political cartoons are a whole other ball game. but is there some kind of a link at times between screwball? Sure, it depends on the cartoons. Like, uh, Herb Luck, would you ever say that any of his stuff was? Not so much, but I would say that like Dr. Seuss was a political cartoonist during World War II, and he's a certified screwball. And like I did mention, uh, Pogo definitely mm -hmm. 
was a political and screwball comic strip. It's possible to do it, but it's it's a different sensibility. I think politics is too overtly serious, and I think screwball goes, its main line goes through just making a hash out of the rational world, but without any, with the kind of nihilistic, anarchistic uh, uh, freedom that doesn't allow you to tow a party line that easily. You've said that one of the problems of doing something about President Trump is not having a punchline. Well, well, isn't it neither comedy nor tragedy? No, well, I mean, it's so it's tragedy. <laughs> uh, but I'm serious; it's it's tragedy. But I I think the problem is that like he's he's such a dangerous figure for me. I can't draw him. I know I'm not supposed to use certain words on this thing, so I will say that I did about three or four caricatures when he was first getting elected, and then I switched to just drawing a little pile of excrement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was very recognizable. Now, you did, as I said earlier, you did stuff that could be called screwball at one point when you did the Garbage Pail Kids. Sure, and I still do it. In my sketchbooks, at least, I'm drawing Mutt and Jeff a lot. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. uh, do you ever feel pressured to do another graphic novel? Well, I, pressure, yes, but I, I kind of uh, embrace the phrase, um, once a philosopher, twice a pervert. Hmm. Well, It was 13 uh, years to do Mouse. Mouse is uh, anything but a screwball comic. <laughs> it's a combination of, of memoir, biography, history, fiction, and autobiography. Um, and you began it in the... Uh, the late 1970s. Yeah. What were you doing those days? What what led you to hmm. even think about making this? That, well, I did a three-page comic book story called Mouse, the Ur-Mouse, as they would say in scholarly circles, mm-hmm. uh, that appeared in funny Aminal comics that had a cover by Robert Crumb. Uh, and so for me, it was like a step up in the world. That was, you weren't pr- publishing those. I, I was a contributor to that. Mm-hmm. And I did a three-page comic. I was living in San Francisco, which was the Paris of... Uh, comics at that moment, uh, the hotbed. And then when I moved back to New York, I realized that I have to be talking to my father again. And so for the first year, speaking of comics, I would put a, a towel over the receiver because I learned in Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers that it makes it sound <laughs> like a long-distance call. So I told my father how I was doing in San Francisco even though I was living a half hour away by subway. And eventually I realized the jig was up. I couldn't keep doing that. Why and were you doing that? Why didn't you I want your father him, to know that you were in town? I was just, he's too difficult for me. It was just, it was, your parents had been difficult. My parents had been difficult each in their own way, but my father was especially difficult for me to spend time with. Um, and and so what happened was I realized I'd have to, and then I figured I'd interviewed him for the 1972 comic strip, the three-page thing, and now that I was back in New York, I should have a microphone because, I mean, I've, I've come to terms with him now that he's dead, it's easier. But at the time, I felt it was like hold, having the microphone was like holding a crucifix up to a vampire or something, you know? So it would keep him at bay, and we'd, it would give us a place to talk. And so I just interviewed him for the next, until uh, he died in the 80s, you know? Like, it was like a long time. When we finished, we'd go back and do it again, and it gave us a place to talk where he wasn't telling me to get a real job or get a haircut. Do you think that part of uh, what made him so difficult was the fact that he was a Holocaust survivor? Yes and no. I mean, like, I think the main thing is that he was Vladek. He was my father. Uh, and he was uh, two generations or more removed. So when you talked about generation gaps, it was a chasm. But I've met other survivors who have very different personalities and uh, uh, ways of living than him. So it's some, there are a lot of variables. Although you say that sometimes he, they would, he would just scream in the middle of the night. 
he'd wake up in terror. Yeah. And my mother killed herself. You know, it's not like these things land on people with different um, consequences, but once they're there, it's uh, embedded. My The shrink that I found who saved me to be able to do the second mouse when I was going to quit uh, and just say, I give up. It's too hard to imagine life in a death camp, the oxymoron. He had been in the same camp as my father and before that had been in Terrazin. And he came out at, like such an amazing humanist. And uh, what he said was, he said, I'm a nihilist and I can't think of anything more nihilistic than acting well, behaving well. Mm. And uh, he's very moving, much more articulate than my father. So I'd continue my conversations with him. It was the perfect example of transference. Well, you obviously uh, moved a lot of people. It, it was the first graphic novel to win a Pulitzer. That phrase wasn't even in my head when I was working. I, I see, you know, the phrase is useful because it's a good marketing term. People understand that they're ambitious comics. I just was making a very long comic book that needs a bookmark and wants to be reread. And did it have a, something of a psychotherapeutic function for you? It's cheaper. <laughs> Uh, you, were you doing screwball comics at that point? Yeah, always. I mean, it's part. It's definitely part of the range of how I come to things. Is like try to make, uh, let see what the demons are like in one's head and let them come out. And a lot of the demons that come out have big feet and big noses. Well, obviously, you had no idea at the time that Mouse would have the kind of, of life that it's had. It still sells well. It sells like a new book every year. Yeah. Um, I thought it'd be discovered by a small coterie, and then after I was dead, then people would see. You know, it would take a while. It went, instead of being decades ahead of my time, I was just a couple of years. You've uh, also uh, expressed admiration for the work of Philip Guston, who was one of the leading mm. abstract expressionist painters. Why, uh, why Guston in particular? Well, he's a real hero to me. In fact, uh, speaking of my writing, I just wrote an essay about George Harriman and Philip Guston that'll be included in the uh, book catalog for the retrospective that'll start at the National Gallery in June. Um, see, what he did that was really amazing was uh, he had started out, if you go to the uh, Whitney Museum right now and see their show about Mexican and art and its influence on Americans, Guston is in the show, and with good reason. He started out working with Sequeros, doing murals, uh, as did, uh, and it was influenced as was an in a generation that included Pollock. Well, that Pollock, was a political, that was also political. Very political. The, the Mexican art. Absolutely. And in it, some ways, what similar to what we've been discussing in, in terms of the cartoons. It was very political, and uh, Guston, when he was a kid, wanted to be a cartoonist, you know, oh. and uh, loved Mutton Jeff, loved Crazy Cat. And he then ripened. He was a very pro um, uh, precocious drafts person, became a rather representational painter influenced by Renaissance art. His pal, his childhood pal, uh, Pollock, moved from California to New York and figured out the abstract expressionist racket. And eventually, Guston came and joined him and became one of the uh, great maybe second generation, I don't know what generation it would be called, totally abstract painters. And that was a cul-de-sac for a lot of people. It's, you know what I mean? Like this, this place where you can't draw a picture of something, just ties 12 hands behind your back and leaves you in a very... Well, he made some very beautiful paintings. Beautiful. And it's the last part of his career I was able to like. Uh, I loved his Mexican period. I loved his cartoon period. But I had to learn to love his abstract work by seeing it's not that different from the stuff with the... Uh, Big Feet and the Weird Cyclops well, character. He, he started painting, he, he abandoned abstract expressionism and did the equivalent of of cartoon figures. Exactly, and that's why uh, that's why he became a hero, because he wasn't doing it with condescension like the pop artists. 
He was doing it out of genuine love and needing to tell stories. Now, just one more thing before we end this, because we're running out of time. Your daughter, Nadja, mm. uh, she published a memoir a few years back called uh, I'm Supposed to uh, Protect, protect from You from All of This, a memoir. Mm. Uh, it's not about you. Isn't that great? She found a way to do the matrilineal descent, which is what I thought the title should be. It was about several generations of women that lead up to her, uh, and each one of them is a very powerful and interesting character. So uh, so she's also, is she still writing? She is, and she's the editor of the uh, Paris Reviews uh, Daily on, online. Mm. And she's a very good editor. She's a great writer. She's, I'm very proud of both my kids, and she's doing great. I'm assuming you're working on another project right now. I am, and it's one I can't talk to you about. Uh, you don't want to mess it up, or no? I, I'm just—I literally am not allowed to talk about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to be secretive. I, my life is an open book, except for that. Well, meanwhile, uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you so great about to see things you, again. you can talk about. Absolutely, Art Spiegelman. Uh, we've been—he uh, wrote a four-page piece. Uh, for the uh, the last edition of the New York it's Review It's the March Books. 12th issue, which is yeah, about to be supplanted. It just just replaced this week, but uh, you can probably find copies of it, and you can also find his find piece it online, online. with more pictures. Uh, with lots of pictures. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on our show. A pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Kevin O'Donohue and Nasima Dimar of the Positive Mind Center for allowing us to use their, their first-rate studio facilities. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And, and don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And we invite you to leave comments about the shows that you hear on any of those sites. We hope also that you will tune in tomorrow when we will welcome our two favorite home repair experts, Alvin and Lawrence Ubell. Uh, they will be, as always, taking your calls. And we'll see you then. <laughs>